Welcome to America This Week from the Harris Poll. I'm John Gersma, and I'm also with my longtime co-host and great colleague and friend, Libby Rodney. Libby, how are you? I'm great, John. Can you believe it's August? <laughs> it's August. Are you uh, Are you back from Orlando? I am back from Disney World. Yeah, not. I wasn't there for fun, but you know, you can't you can't escape the mouse. It's always going to be a good time. Uh, I see. Yeah, don't tell your kids you went to to Orlando and Disney World without them <laughs> for a pure purely business Harris related uh, meeting. Yeah. That will not fly well in the Magic Kingdom. Um, no. Hey, listen, we've got a lot to talk about, but um, maybe just for, for listeners real quick, um, tell them a little bit about our pod. We are pollsters who are reformed marketers, recovering marketers, or either marketers who are recovering pollsters, I'm not sure. But what we, we try to do is take a really objective look at society, right? Um, what we're trying to do every week is look at the issues that matter in the country from a sociological perspective, from a political perspective, and really what do they mean for business? And so that's what we do every week. And we started this, can you believe it, 127 weeks ago. The genesis of this was for the company <laughs> to do a public poll that wasn't commercial. It was basically to understand the country in at the beginning of the pandemic. And we've obviously evolved that. And we're going to talk about some of those issues today. Yeah. Can't okay. Wait. So let's get into it. We've got four stories. Uh, the first story is made in America. Does the label sell? We're going to dive into the American consumer and what made in America means to them. And then you've got a, a really interesting story looking back now uh, a month later after Roe v. Wade, right? Yeah, we took a pulse and we were we're going to talk about the behaviors and the actions and the shifts that have already happened in the market because of the overturn of Roe v. Wade. Great. And then as our third story, we're going to talk about how companies can win over Gen Z. This is a new ad age poll that uh, our co-CEO, Will Johnson, ran. I thought it was really interesting research, and we'll get into that. And then you've got a really interesting kind of final story on, on what's happening with corporate advertising. Right? Yeah. So um, we did a poll on, on the future of corporate advertising and, and thought leadership and how there's a, a big gap there in terms of what people want from thought leadership versus what they're receiving today. So excited to talk about that. Awesome. Okay, well, let's get in as usual to the weekly numbers. The first thing we're going to see in our data is that it was quite surprising, Libby, that economic concerns cooled off slightly this week. We still have a significant number of people that are worried about the economy. Eight and 10 continue to be very concerned about inflation and energy prices, but that's down six points from last week. And we also see a three-point drop in concern over people losing their jobs. And I thought that was really interesting because the Bureau, uh, U.S. Labor Department, rather, released their report this morning. I don't know if you saw this, Libby, but um, flashed on my phone that uh, the U.S. added 528,000 jobs, which is quite surprising. And that has continues to sort of drive down the unemployment rate, which is down now to 3.5%. And I, I thought was super interesting in that data was, you know, what the job sectors that rose were travel and leisure, Healthcare, those have been sort of, you know, sort of stable and growing, particularly during the summer. But it was also professional services, and then then construction, manufacturing, and finance all did well. And those are usually sort of vulnerable to rate hikes, which we've seen from the Fed, the Fed rather. So I thought that was quite interesting that the the job 
sort of market continues to, to remain uh, fairly robust. Um, and it feels like we're kind of in this situation where it's bad, but it's not getting worse. I don't know if you, if you see that. We uh, released our new Harvard-Harris poll on Friday, and we continue to see that you know two-thirds of American voters at 67% say the economy's on the wrong track, but it's down four points from June. And 56% of Americans saying that their personal economic situation is worsening, but that's also down um, from 64%. So that's down eight points from June. So I don't know. What do you think, Libby? Do you think we're in a recession? I uh, I joked with our our <laughs> colleague Jay Levitin yesterday. Maybe we're in a meh session, which M-E-H, kind of a, a shrug session. Meh. Right. That's so funny because we were having the same conversation at a bar in Orlando. You know, the bartender was like, it's over. We're fine. The recession's done. Like, we're, we're great. And then people at the bar were like, oh, I don't know. Like, hold on. Um, so I, I, what I think is that the good news is that people's financial situations are seem to be improving people are kind of have we talked about this like the slow brace for impact and so perhaps some of that is just our natural you know need and instinct to secure ourselves if we go into a, a further recession but maybe this will also help us go into this mess session i like that idea <laughs> but it's like you know, it's a soft landing, but then it, you know, we we get out of it a little bit faster because we brace for it, and it's not an a turn of overnight events. Um, so maybe that's that's probably just a healthy thing that's part of uh, our economy. Yeah. I, by the way, I came up with the mess session this morning uh, in the pool. That's right. Oh, that's I right. Get my best ideas. Um, <laughs> it may also be a function of personal distraction, right? Because we're also in a new public health emergency. What did we see there, Libby? Yeah, so we see that 67% of the public are still concerned about the BA5 variant, um, and 63% are concerned about a new wave in their area. And then also, you have 58% now concerned about the monkeypox outbreak, which the U.S. you know the U.S. just declared a national emergency over. So again, as these kind of existential crisis keeps stacking on one another, we just kind of shift our focus, right? So we're like, all right, we'll worry about our wallet next week because now I'm worried about monkeypox, mm -hmm. you know? And so there's just there's just so much to be concerned about. That really does support your theory. I think you were talking about on last week's pod or maybe the week before about this just sense of resiliency, right? That we're building in and hedging hedging our, our disappointment and our and our happiness to some extent. Yeah, and actually, it's it's interesting. I've been doing a lot of research around that, and you know, the idea of being of positivity and optimism for everything is is not that useful, right? It's kind of that toxic positivity that people are pushing uh, back against in the mental health space. But what's really interesting is their their um, desire is that people just become more resilient, and our happiness and our optimism is derived from being more resilient. And so that becomes kind of the new North Star. And I thought that was kind of an interesting framework because that's probably what we'll need more and more over the next, you know, five to 10 years or ongoing decades. Mm, that's interesting. Well, hey, should we talk a little bit about some of our stories? Let's, um, let's talk yeah. about Made in America. So what a famous thing, right? You see that on the tag of a shirt, Made in America. Okay, I'm <laughs> going to buy this T-shirt. 
So we put that to test. We did a did a poll this week with Morning Brew, actually the retail brew group uh, at Morning Brew, and I, I think we found some really interesting things. And I um, I put this up on on LinkedIn this week, and the America this week uh, listeners got it got it going, got a little heat on it, which I thought was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. I saw some really great perspectives from folks that I think we'll talk about. But um, let's talk with the basics. So. I think the premise of this research was that that Americans, you know, say they'll buy made in the USA, right? There's a big difference between stated, as we know in our business, and behavioral. And stated, you know, made in the USA sounds great. Our question that we put to Americans was whether they'd pay more for it. And what we found was that nearly half, 48% of Americans said that they'd be willing to pay about 10 to 20% more for an American-made product over an imported one. But what gets interesting is it was well under a fifth, only 17% were willing to pay 30% more. So again, just on those numbers, half will go 10 to 20%, but you're way down uh, when you get uh, at 30% or more. And I think that gets really interesting because that's about the types of of margins in, in many industries and product service categories that you're dealing with when you're looking at made in America versus imported goods. I'm extrapolating there, but I think that's part of the problem that we'll see as we get into this. But what was also interesting is that, you know, two thirds, uh, 64% of Americans who told us in the past year they've shopped for US made goods, they are reporting that inflation is hurting them and more than a quarter at 26% say inflation has a lot of negative impact on their likelihood of buying American made. So there's probably several reasons why the desire for American goods don't often translate into actual sales. And Libby, you know, these, this is offshoring, it's non-competitive U.S. manufacturing. Um, you know, you've got people that feel they're buying American. They may be going into a big box store or, a, or an American retailer they know, but the goods that they're buying that they're not really seeing are, are, are coming from overseas. And so I just was really interested, you know, if you could maybe pull us apart a little bit for us and and maybe take some of the LinkedIn comments that we heard from our America This Week listeners. Yeah, by the way, we love that. Um, All the LinkedIn comments were so great. And the discussion in the thread was just, it illuminated this, um, the challenge that Americans have and the desire to buy Made in American, but the real challenges they have, right? Because, you know, people in LinkedIn described about having their own small businesses, but how, you know, the prices and the resources of everything that was made in America made it unsellable for them to have a product of small business in America. Meanwhile, other consumers were saying, I thought I was buying American products, but it turns out I wasn't. Other people talked about how how do you expect people to buy made in American products when you know where people are living paycheck to paycheck? And then others pointed out quickly that you know um, this is this is a product of where we've been headed for the last you know many decades where we've offshored all our manufacturing. We want cheaper, faster, more convenient, and so that's the only way that that's been able to be possible is the rise of globalization, right? And so I, th- I think that's really fascinating because it's complex and there's a lot of factors that impact it. But ultimately, 
there's a value exchange we have when we buy products and services and experiences that people are reckoning with and and they're um, we believe that they're going to vote with their wallet a bit differently. Even in times of inflation, we see that people are kind of rethinking what what exactly are their needs and how do they um, vote with their wallet in a way that aligns more with their values. So Libby, that's really interesting. And I want to, I want to probe on this a little bit more. I mean, do you think this is a marketing problem, positioning problem? Like, is this, is this framing the right way to American consumers? Because we have tons of Harris data that says that Americans want jobs in America, they want fair trade. We've got all this data that says, you know, we respect companies when they treat their employees fairly, when they protect their workers and all that stuff sort of presumably, and this was something that I, I kind of picked on in the LinkedIn discussion. That's something presumably that comes with Made America products, right? You know, you have some sense that OSHA is protecting workers if you're buying an American product versus wherever else you're getting it. And so with all of those things going on from, sort of ESG and sustainability, all these things everybody wants, why aren't we paying for it? Uh, I think that's like a, a really fundamental question is, is there just messaging that is landing poorly it, that we're not really talking through the costs uh, that go into these products? Yeah, I was, I was thinking about that. I mean, I think there's a couple of things. I think there's messaging. So I think there can be more transparent messaging, like why do things cost the price that they do? I think there's a big overarching um, division between those who have enough discretionary income to spend the money. To, so if, if something costs more, they're willing to pay for it. And then there's those who, who just don't. But then, Jonna, I was really thinking about this and I was like, I think this is a big logistic issue. So I think what Amazon has done as a retailer has just solved logistics. And then when we ask people a lot of times, like, why don't you shop more at small businesses? Why don't you shop at black owned businesses that you want, et cetera, et cetera. People can't find them, right? And people can't get that convenience that they want, or they don't know it's American made and they don't know the pricing behind it. So it's like, what are the logistics behind bringing American made products, services, small businesses, Black-owned businesses, Hispanic-owned businesses to um, to a platform that's as seamless as kind of like an Amazon, right? And I know Amazon is trying to solve for that, but I'm also think like someone I'm really watching for is Shopify yeah, because they're basically, you know, bringing together these small businesses in a platform and, and they want to compete against Amazon in that way. So I'm like, maybe there's something about the logistics angle that doesn't put the burden on the consumer, but, you know, gives them what they want, even if they're willing to pay a bit of a premium for it, but secures the idea that it's actually being made in America. And maybe shows that entire process through a sustainable way, right? In a real transparent way. Yeah. You know, I think that as you're talking, that reminds me of that really great program that Patagonia did with the Footprint Chronicles. You know, you could go into the website and trace a product from its origins, wherever it was made in the world, kind of back into the U.S. and sort of look at its at its carbon footprint, how it treated its workers. Um, that's really interesting. Yeah, and, and that's like great storytelling. I think Everlane has really great mm -hmm. storytelling around that. Um, but then I also think there's probably going to be a use where some sort of blockchain 
uh, blockchain transparency is used mm -hmm. to understand the sustainability where things come from. But then in the U.S. particular, um, that might be as much of an issue, but there might be more stories around, well, what's the give back model to that community? How are they supporting more people in that community? And how does that foster kind of um, uh, more equity in America, et cetera? Like those really, you know, stories of American independence and equity kind of interwoven. Um, let's go deeper on that. We got to think some more about that for a future pod. That's a great, great yeah. thought. Um, last thought on this was just sort of patriotism. You know, do you remember after 9-11, it was uh, freedom fries, right? <laughs> it was like, it's all for <laughs> us. And uh, just one last point on that was, you know, could patriotism instill premium pricing? It is interesting to note in our latest Harvard-Harris poll that only 16% of Americans have a favorable view of China and only 10% have a favorable view of Russia. So I, I don't know, as marketers are thinking about their made in the USA, that's potentially another sort of place to go from. And, and in fact, we did even see in the data this week, you know, that front office sports Harris poll that 35% of American uh, F1 fans said they'd be more interested in the racing series if there were more American drivers. So, you know, mm. kind of interesting uh, domestic uh, things there to consider. Hey, but let's talk a little bit more about a, a really important uh, second story. You've dove into our research to sort of look at American attitudes a month later after the, the landmark case uh, overturning Roe v. Wade. Do you want to talk about what you learned? Yeah. So let's talk about that pulse, right? So um, we pulse a couple of things like what's the how how are people concerned about this continues? Like what's the reaction to leadership? What's the behavioral reaction? And then what are people doing um, as as a result? So overall, when we look at how concerned people are or being concerned about abortion is only second to inflation so when we ask people like what's your greatest concern the top two concerns you know were inflation abortion and that's ahead of crime and energy prices and um, women overall rate abortion as a higher concern than men that's kind of no surprise that if, as it impacts women a lot more um but interestingly so that was when we asked you know what's your personal greatest concern but then when we asked what's the most important issues facing the country um women's rights place six and that's behind inflation economy jobs gun immigration um and crime and drugs and then there was a, a big gender split here women said inflation economy and guns and then their own rights so it's it's an interesting thing where they're like hey you know i need to secure my job feed my family and make sure guns don't impact my my life and my family but men unfortunately wait ranked women's rights as 14th which is just dead last and so there's a big um you know there's a big gap right. there that that needs to be bridged um but then also we looked at what's the reaction to leadership and then we saw that women and young americans favorability of the president is down um and so in july the overall favorability of biden was at 50 percent for women it was at 43 percent, so a drop of seven points and for young people 18 to 34 it's down 13 wow. points so just you know a big drop off there um, but we thought what was really interesting was the behavioral reaction that women are doing so women are seeking long-term and permanent contraception 
contraceptive protection. So we did this poll with um, time and found that 65% of women 18 to 44 use birth control over the last month. But what's really interesting is one fifth reported changing their primary contraception uh, method. And what we found is that they're more likely to start to think about in the future using permanent contraceptive methods. Um, so when we look at have research purchased for the future use or otherwise considered using, permanent contraception hmm. like hysterectomies or sterilization rises to 14%. Um, and contrace contraceptive implants and IUDs um, is at 12%. So it's just, there's a big percentage of women who are like, how do I protect myself more from the long term of how these things might go down in the future and, and um, you know, have more control over my body. And we saw even in um, Planned Parenthood said that 41%, they had 41% increase of IUD appointments in the last month. So just a lot of action that women are taking over their own body to control it more. And then the fourth part of this pulse is just, you know, what we're seeing around mobilizing the vote around civil, civil liberties and privacy. So this was the big Kansas news that happened this week. Um, but Kansas, you know, overwhelmingly rejected the constitutional amendment that would have opened the door for state lawmakers to further restrict or ban abortions across the state. And what's interesting about that is it wasn't just women's rights, but it was all it was a messaging that appealed to people's sensibilities, libertarian sensibilities about privacy and about private healthcare decisions and like who gets the right to decide, you know, those decisions and, and the privacy there. So John, this got me really thinking about privacy and privacy as a fundamental right. Um, and what's interesting, and you know this, is like we've been doing so much data, you know, research on privacy for years, but nothing's really been, uh, like nothing's been qualified as, as such a, it, it's, it's never hit us this hard in this way um, in the US at least. So people have been willing to trade their data, their location, their identity for convenience or time saving or entertainment. But now in this new reality where state governments and local prosecutors can use Google search history or your period tracker app yeah. to create a, a case against you, the role of privacy is really fundamentally changing. And so I don't know, what do you what do you think about that? Where does that bring our future, especially with, you know, the role of big tech and trust and privacy? How do you kind of wrap your head around that future? Oh man. I mean so much to sort of delve into here, Libby, but I mean I, I gotta just harken back on your your stat that one fifth of American women reported changing their primary contraception method in the preceding month. I mean that is that's remarkable, and the the fact that that this has gone into this more of a of a permanent, more of a um, I don't know how you would sort of describe it. I mean, you you could describe it better than me, but it feels like it's much more personal, much more defensive sort of techniques that are, Absolutely. That are being taken. Absolutely, it's like armor, basically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you know that just I think speaks to the the sort of emotional uh, strain that that not all but many women are under that you've got uh, one fifth that have already and this isn't just stated that they will do it this is like saying that they've done it again it's stated data but they said that this is action they've taken 
But on the on the date and privacy part, I go back to that because I do think that sets that up. I think that the stakes here are just far beyond how we sort of traditionally think about the equation of privacy. You know, as, as you well know, we were very happy, especially in America, maybe not in Europe, but in America to exchange a lot of our privacy for convenience, right? Just click on that box, accept all cookies, whatever it is, you know, use that app, don't even really think about it. But the stakes now are just so unbelievably high that I think data use, at least in this data you're sharing with me, that data use is now sort of more directly um, linked to harmful exposure to life altering events. You know, you just described that, you know, a period tracker, using you know using this data in a in a wi-fi zone in a in a state potentially that that could have ramifications on your own on your own body and so i don't know libby how you think about this but it feels to me like data privacy is now um sort of a personal behavior issue where you need to think about your conduct using data the same way you'd think about using alcohol and making sure you don't drive or or harming your body, you know, uh, through drugs or any other type of risky behavior. I don't think we've ever thought about using our app, our phones as, as a risky behavior, maybe in that context. What do you, mm. what do you think? Yeah, that's so interesting. I Yeah, I, I think it has so many implications for how we perceive all the data and all the tracking and all the accepting of cookies because it, it starts to go, okay, well, wait a minute, if this data becomes weaponized against me, what am I really going to do, right? And and so what apps am I going to accept? And um, even, even the role of a more cashless society becomes in question when you might need to access cash to do something that the government says that you don't have rights to do, but you, you want to yeah. do, right? So there's just so many more civil liberties that are tied to data protection that become very real for people that lawyers and civil liberty advocates always were talking about but now it's kind of the the road hits the rubber and um you know that people are really considering so i think it's it spells trouble actually for a lot of you know, potentially medical health apps and, and things, because now you really start to see the implication of what happens when I track these things voluntarily, um, but that could further be used against me in three to five years. So it's it's just a very interesting point of time. Yeah, and I, I know we don't have time to talk about it today, but it does connect back to the data we discussed about um, crypto, right? you know, routing around traditional financial institutions and how that has become appealing to, to many Americans, whether it's people of color or the LGBTQ plus community or, you know, the driving values underneath the metaverse that you've talked about, which is about not having it be run by, by big tech. So I, I just think there's a lot yeah. that we can kind of play with. That's great data. That's that, again, that, that those numbers are really, really shocking. Um, but let's let's turn to our last two stories. The this third story is about how companies can uh, win over Gen Z, and this was uh, some great research that we ran in conjunction uh, with AdAge uh, this week. And and Will Johnson, our co CEO and awesome dude in Chicago, uh, found this research for us. I thought this was really good stuff. Um, first of all, I guess you know we always go do Gen Z, we don't define it, but these are 20, 10 to 25 year olds born between uh, 1997 
and 2012. And I don't have to tell you why they're important. Uh, they're obviously young and future and now big time consumers and they're about to be the largest cohort of consumers. Um, there's just so much going on with this group, obviously different channels, different means of effectiveness, um, ways in which they're, they're working. I'll give you one really great example. I was um, reading this week about how TikTok is quietly becoming the default search engine for Gen Z. Um, it was real interesting. There was this guy, um, uh, 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 Prabhakar Ravagan. Ravagan, we know that last name, don't we, Libby? Um, but mm -hmm. at Fortune's uh, Brainstorm Tech Conference, he was talking about how um, 18 to 24-year-olds are, are moving off Google search and maps and instead mm -hmm. just sending their inquiries to their social media sites. So, you know, there's things like um, TikTok taught me, right, which is like I want to learn something. So I just mm -hmm. go and I hit that or I hit my influencers, um, you know, that are inside TikTok to try to get advice. And it was just real interesting, even on that hashtag, uh, TikTok taught me, has gained a cumulative 8 billion views on the platform. <laughs> so it just shows you how fast things are, are kind of changing. And uh, when, when you look sure. at this data, um, you know, there's some really interesting key qualities uh, to keep in mind, right? That there's a, a, a far maybe different way in which this, this, this audience is interacting with brands and how they're thinking about uh, what defines their values. But Libby, I'd love for you to maybe go a little bit deeper in this and maybe take a couple of brand examples of some of the brands that, that are doing well and maybe why. Yeah, I would say there's like three brands that make sense to talk about. Um, Converse, the NBA, and JetBlue. And basically each one of them hits a principle of marketing to Gen Z that makes a lot of sense to them. So for example, Converse, um, really builds trust in the long tail. So when you think about where trust for Gen Z is built, it's built at the micro influencer level, not the macro influencer level, not celebrity level. Um, so Congress or Converse just relaunched and made a renewed investment in their all-star community, which is a micro influencer community of over 2000 people worldwide. And it's rooted in creativity and really help to bring that community together. So they're thinking about the long tail. How do we bring these people together? How do we bring it together around our brand and Converse? And they're doing collaborations with Kendrick Lamar and Snapchat. So they're they're living in that space very authentically to Gen Z. Um, another really great brand, you know, kind of moving forward with Gen Z is the NBA. And I think they're what they're doing is basically building a media house built for the future web, for web three and, and the metaverse. Um, but they just have this monster media house going. So they have social media specialists, they have content specialists, they have personal branding activities for their, um, for their players. And so they're building this huge giant media platform that kind of socializes the NBA and its beliefs and values and the fun globally. Um, but then they're also really leading us into the future. And so they did a bunch of NT NFT uh, drops this year. Um, they did 75 um, per player of all teams in the 2022 NBA playoffs. So they're just getting into the space and having fun in it and acting more like the way that Gen Z relates to the world, which is 
agile, media first, you know, uh, bit sized information and entertainment. And then the last one here is JetBlue. And I think the reason that they're, you know, rising is because they created this um, inclusive travel culture. So they recently launched this thing called Safe Space Certification Program, which identifies travel companies and entertainment venues and food and beverage locations, businesses and other public venues that work to serve as a safe space for the LGBTQAI community. And so again, when you think about how do you how do you go through the world? How do you cultivate these things that are useful to people? How do you solve for the logistics behind what people want? JetBlue is doing that with their kind of inclusive travel culture. And I think that's really resonating with, with Gen Z. Yeah, that's super interesting. And um, those are some, some great examples. I, I think one of the things that I, I find fascinating is that you have all, everyone sort of shorting NFTs and, and crypto and all that, and yet you see some really interesting examples of sort of how to effectively use them and, and not think about them at a superficial level. And, and that program at JetBlue is just fantastic. Um, hey, speaking of that, let's, yeah. that contributes JetBlue to their thought leadership, and that's our last story. So we've got some um, interesting data in this area. Do you want to finish this up? Yeah, so, um, you know, what's the difference between wanting to be a thought leader and being a thought leader? And <laughs> our um, co-CEO, Will Johnson, had an op-ed in AdAge um, based on a recent Harris Poll report that we had that the business community wants to be a thought leader, but there's a big gap. So more than nine and 10 top executives said thought leadership is critical to building authority in my industry. So really, you know, being there, thought leadership is important but a few seem to be doing it well. So just over a quarter, 28% said that their organization has a robust thought leadership strategy. And in comparison, only one in five executives characterize their company's approach as highly effective. Um, I think what's important here is what's at stake, right? There's growth, attention, and leadership. So over nine and 10 business leaders told us that they thought thought leadership was more important now because it's harder to get noticed in a more virtual working world. Um, and it's a costly oversight as, you know, a majority of executives surveyed that said that they use thought leadership to drive sales, to build trust with clients and to build brand authority. So you're losing a lot off the table by having this kind of lackluster, you know, non-robust approach to thought leadership. Um, and John, just like, you know, while executives clearly value thought leadership, but they don't see their company as deploying it effectively, you know, why? Why do you think that's happening and, and what can they do yeah, about it? I mean, I love this area and I know you love it too. You're a, you're a practice lead and an expert in it, but it's number one, it's just moving so quickly. And I think when you think of thought leadership, at least in the traditional B2B space, you're like, you know, some really boring white paper that that gets dropped. And I think number one, that's changing, right? Because of all the channels and all the different ways that you can communicate, whether it's, you know, podcasts, videos, um, sort of communities, speeches, live events, there's just so many different ways to sort of show what you believe. But the best part about this is, um, I think it's really a reflection of how trust is changing. You know, I mean, clearly mm -hmm. people don't trust um, large institutions, they don't trust large, big business, you know, big pharma, big tech, big government. We see all that in our Harris data. 
And that gave a lot of rise to the individual influencer. But I think what's interesting about thought leadership research is that it's a way to show your values, right? It's a way to talk about what your mm-hmm. company believes, whether it's your culture, your employees, and it's really also a way to kind of go out to your stakeholders, you know, the broader marketplace and society and say, hey, you know, we went out, we listened, and we want to share the results uh, with you. And I think that's what's powerful in this. And it's whether, you know, you work with Harris or you work with another firm, the point is, is that you're putting out your own research that is credible, that is not biased, and that you were talking about issues um, that really matter. You know, I mean, there's just tons of examples, not just the kind of stuff that we do, but but examples all over the place of companies talking about important social issues, speaking out on what they believe and and using that as a as a way to sort of stick in people's minds because it's reported, you know, through the media and I think through the news media rather and, and it's independent verified data. So I, I think this is just a massively sort of, you know, a exploding uh, different place. And I go back to Libby, you know, what we did with Unilever and Paul Pullman at Davos, you know, that was data I know you and I were really proud of, but we we looked at um, gender inequality. And this is before Me Too, this is like, what, five or six years ago, we did uh, a, a panel at, at Davos and Unilever strongly believed um, in championing the rights of, of their women workers in their supply chains around the world and also in their companies. And we found significant disappointment in that. And they they basically presented that uh, as, a, as a clarion call to action. So I, I just think there's a lot in this space. I don't know what you think. Well, yeah, I'm obviously <laughs> biased and super passionate about it. Um, but I think in the context of everything we talk about on a week-to-week basis, it's like they're all come what consumers really asking companies to do is to give them a sense of leadership and yeah. a sense of vision for the world the world's going um, but not to j- just do it from their own perspective but do it from a collective perspective they're not giving that from the government so they're looking to companies to say what does the future look like but but add our voices into the future you know and so i think that's what's really cool about thought leadership research because it's like where are we going? What's important about that? What's the vision so that we all can confidently and kind of navigate towards that future? Um, but then also, what do we think about that as people? What do what does the average person think about that? Or what are marginalized communities who don't get a voice at the table think about that? And adding their voices, you know, and perspectives and the American perspective or global perspectives, it's really important to building that influence and that that reason that we all kind of collectively come together. So I think it's probably the most imperative time now to be doing that um, as a corporation, you know, and as a as a company, because people are really looking for that yeah, kind of and leadership. Yeah, and the last thing I'd say on that is, you remember from our, our Milken Institute Harris Poll data this year, we looked at trust across a stratification of institutions. And we found that small business trust was at 91% versus 58% trust, you know, in, in big business, uh, or 58, 5% trust of the presidency, 45% of tech companies and 17% of lawmakers. So the, the bigger and, and less sort of, um, you know, sort of direct the, the less trust. 
And I think that's really what's at play here is that even if you're a big company, by showing your struggles, showing your humanity, taking an issue and talking about it credibly, it's just far more modern and effective than what used to be the traditional corporate advertising that that ran that really just let's be honest it was window washing right it, it or you know sort of looked like window dressing rather it looked like something that was more manufactured to say we look great it was more like an annual report than it was really a, a statement of, of what you believe yeah absolutely and look we were experts at that <laughs> at that time too we're learning so we're on a anyone who's doing that it's it's not a yeah yeah exactly it's 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 not no shots fired on that but it's just that there's an evolution of yeah, where we're going sure. um and what people for expect sure. from you hey absolutely this has been a great discussion <laughs> as always um we would love our listeners to um send us poll ideas just reach out to libby rodney on linkedin or John Gersma on LinkedIn. Also, we have a newsletter, the America This Week newsletter that you can find on LinkedIn. And lastly, if you uh, like any of this, please uh, leave us a review, but we really appreciate your time. And by all means, send us uh, some poll ideas and most importantly, have a great weekend. Right, Libby? Yeah, absolutely. Everyone have okay, a wonderful well. weekend. Enjoy the last right month of be summer. Well, everybody. <laughs>